Hello, it's great to see y'all again. Hi, a long time no see. I know. Welcome to Exchanges, a collection of conversation exchanges presented by the LGBTQ Youth Exchange for Change, exploring the truths, resiliency, and leadership of LGBTQ youth nationwide. I am Sheer Avery, a Black and Indigenous non-binary trans femme, creative visionary, published researcher, social justice advocate, and director of the LGBTQ Youth Exchange for Change, a national partnership between Lambda Legal and Baker McKenzie, sponsored by Warner Media. And I'm Elliot Hinkle, a transmasculine non-binary person and a former foster youth who grew up in the Wyoming foster care system and now advocates for youth in the child welfare system, young adult mental health needs and wellness, and the LGBTQ community. I'm based in Portland, Oregon as a youth and young adult coordinator for Oregon Healthy Transitions at Portland State University. Join Sheer and I in thought-provoking exchanges between young leaders, social justice advocates, pioneering researchers, business innovators, corporate allies, and media storytellers. Tune in, follow along, and join us in our change-making journey. To learn more, visit exchangeforchange.org and follow us on Twitter using the handle at LGBTQ Youth Exchange with an X and Instagram at Queer Youth Exchange with an X. We will be the first time we're talking about LGBT youth um, and this data. I haven't reported this data anywhere else. You got the exclusive. We're just going to have you speak about all those numbers. <laughs> One of the things that I highlight in our kind of the unseens and the fact that out of 27,000 young people, we're seeing, you know, only about 20% of young people identifying as straight and here are their outcomes. That's something to speak to. Following up from the last exchange experience we had, LGBTQ youth in rural America, today we are joined by Sixto Cancel from Think of Us. Sixto and I have been in the foster care sphere for a minute, so it's really cool to have you here on exchanges to share with us about the great work that you and Think of Us have been up to. Thanks for being here, Sixto. Thank you so much, Elliot, for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you all tonight because just like so many of the stories that um, we're uncovering during COVID, there seems to be another hidden story. And once again, it seems to be rooted with young people who identify as other than straight. During this time during COVID, we have been able to um, be quite responsive to some of the needs that young people have had. One of the things that we've done is um, launched a cash grant opportunity where young people apply for a cash grant and we would select a handful of folks what we didn't expect was for that opportunity to go kind of foster care viral and get 27,000 applications in. And when we look at the data, um, we were very astounded to see that only about 20% of the, of the applicants actually identified as heterosexual. And that the rest of the applicants 
um, fell on the beautiful spectrum that we know humans kind of live on, right? Um, so whether that is being identifying as gay, straight, bisexual, demisexual, you name it, um, young people definitely were able to kind of highlight some of these. And it brought a big question to us, which is what, what is the phenomenon here? Is it that we're living in a different world or is it that our systems are failing our LGBT youth and this is a representation of what's happening in this very moment? Sixto, it's so good to be in virtual community with you once again. I personally have been in awe and inspired by the work that you've done over the last several years. So thank you so much for joining us for our third episode. Where have you found inspiration to create change for foster youth? You know, during this time, I think it's been um, very important for everyone to be able to practice that self-care. But there's a very different type of mental health that comes into play um, that comes from inspiration. And for us, you know, as much pain as we're seeing across the country, we have seen people mobilize like never before. Young people who may not have a lot to give, but still were putting together food packages because they knew someone else needed it. And it has just been so rewarding to see how young people, alumni, young adults have all come together to say, hey, this is what the collective need is for young people in foster care. And this is why we need to see certain changes. And at the forefront of this reform that has happened over the last five, nine months, what we've seen is a mobilization of foster care alumni like never before. Thank you, Sixto. Could you tell us a little bit about Think of Us and how does Think of Us empower and improve the well-being of foster youth? So my name is Sixo Canso. I'm the founder and CEO of Think of Us, and we are a systems change nonprofit. We focus in on how is it that we center the lived experience in a reform effort, in a design, in an intervention. And the way we do that is by making sure that from the very beginning, those who are the most impacted by a problem get to frame the problem, get to scope the project, get to scope out what are the different levers that we're going to pull. And what makes us different is that we're not looking to just redesign programs. We focus on the six conditions of change, right? How is it that we actually dig deep to the deepest, deepest um, transformative piece of systems that drive systems, which is the mental models that drive a system? How do we actually, actually evaluate the power dynamics, the relationships and connection. And then the top of that iceberg that most people talk about, the policy, the resource, the policy, the practices and resource flows. So what we like to do is really think deeply about how is it that we're really flipping the script on those mental models? How are the current mental models that actually don't further equity are driving the current policy agenda? And how might we begin to go ahead and redesign some of that by centering the lived experience. Of course, we know that if anything this year has taught us that there is a desperate need to approach all of these systemic inequities and social justice issues differently. We need to be talking about the unseens, the unheards. And I'm wondering, if you can talk a little bit about the importance of technology 
and how tech for good can help gather more inclusive data and vice versa. One of the things that I believe is so important is how is it that we begin to really drive um, our decisions um, with by leveraging technology for the thing that it produces, which is data. Right now, there's $153 million sitting in a HUD account. And this HUD account um, is actually set aside for literally um, paying for providing housing vouchers for young people who've aged out of foster care um, all the way up to their 26th birthday. And the way that, they, that this is distributed right now is that each public housing agency gets 25 vouchers across the country. But when we look at places like North Dakota, there are a couple thousand young people in foster care, right? When we look at places like California, New York, Florida, you're talking about, you know, California, 100,000 young people. You're talking about north of 50,000 young people in the systems in these other places. And so when we go to make decisions about who gets what, it's so important that we understand deeply how is it that we are making decisions um, that, that are based and rooted in the evidence, right, in the data? And yet we still have not integrated technology enough into the way that we operate as a system so that we can be able to pull those insights out. Hmm. And I hear that you have an exclusive for us. We do. So you are all very much um, the first ones to hear this. And um, we'll say we're in the middle of cleaning data um, right now. So one of the things that we did during COVID was we launched this opportunity to apply for a cash grant. And in that process, we asked young people from all over the country if they would be willing to share some of their anonymized answers to the questions that they, they, they submitted. And what we didn't know, what we had no idea what would happen here, which was we ended up with 27,000 applications. And that was very fairly distributed amongst, in proportion, should I say, to across the country. And so we're actually seeing these trends from state to state. And we collected the data in a way that it was by zip code. So right now we're in the middle of having two data scientists um, clean the data, get it prepared. And the most phenomenal thing um, has happened, which is not only are we seeing what are their needs, um, but we're also seeing what do they believe is helpful. And to hear that from thousands and thousands and thousands of young people and young adults about what is helpful right now around mental health, what is helpful right now around employment, housing, what is helpful around connection. These are the things that young people have been able to lift up in, in this application, which now gives us insight to be able to go ahead and deliver some of those, some of those insights to Congress. And one of them is very interesting, which is about 20, 20, 25% right now of this population is actually identifying as straight. And I'll pause there because I think most of the conversation, whenever we talk about data and who is something affecting, we always think about those who don't identify as straight, who are LGBT, who are part of a sexual minority, that it is usually, we're the 25%. But in this mm -hmm. specific case, the people who have applied, 
and, and reached out and reported, it's looking like about that 70% um, identify as somewhere on the spectrum other than heterosexual. Wow. And the reason we bring this up is because it's causing this really deep question for us, which is, is this, is this because we are living in a, in a time where people are more accepting of who they are and willing to live in a freer way and disclose? Or is the system failing that much that those who are experiencing extreme impact right now happen to be folks who don't identify as heterosexual? Hmm. That data is just so staggering. Thank you for sharing that exclusive here with us on exchanges. Elliot, I have a question for you, my friend. As someone who has experienced foster care in Wyoming, I'm wondering if you can talk about the specific needs of young people in rural communities who are in foster care and how that might differ um, from foster youth in urban areas. Yeah, so I think one big similarity that foster youth that are LGBTQ have is that there is a lack of enough affirming homes and placements. So regardless of location, we know that. When we think of Fulton versus Philly in the Supreme Court case, there's still this debate happening about who can be foster parents. So that's a struggle that's shared. But for rural foster youth, I think some things that come up are that resources are especially far away. If you don't have Wi-Fi, if you don't have a cell phone or a computer, you don't have a way to reach outside of your community to see yourself represented. And that includes if you don't have access to television or YouTube to be able to basically go find information to say, oh, other people feel this way too. So I think that's something that can be really missing in a lot of rural spaces, but also just the safety to find people where you see yourself represented out in the world. You can walk around and be yourself. You can talk to a teacher and not worry that they are going to tell your parents. And then there's a whole issue that happens. So I think some of those things have a really big impact on foster youth, especially rural youth, because it's that question of, do I decide to be myself or do I decide to keep my family or my housing? This really crappy decision that they shouldn't have to make, but a lot of people are stuck in that trap. And I've experienced that. And so I think for rural youth and foster care, it can feel like you're especially removed and the light at the end of the tunnel is really far away because on top of being removed from cities and urban places, even when you get older, it's like, how do I get out of this small town? How do I make that step? Do I even have the supports to do that? And I remember moving from Wyoming to Portland for school and I had housing in dorms and I had scholarships, but the, still the first six months, I was like, what am I doing here? Was this the right decision? And I'm so glad I did it. But I think for young people in foster care, if you don't have any of those examples, it could be terrifying and kind of leave you stuck. So that's some of the things that come to mind. And I think Think of Us is a great mediator or intervener of, of those barriers. Because I think you, you, you struck the chord there right at the end. And Think of Us yeah. really addresses a lot of that. Yeah, I'm wondering, Sixto, if you could talk any about the, the data and any like barriers to wellness that maybe you see um, out there, whether it's the work that you're doing right now or just in general, what's kind of come up for y'all? One of the fundamental barriers of the child welfare system um, for young people is that it was literally never designed for adolescents. 2019 National uh, Academy of Science, Medicine, and Engineering the Adolescent Promise, it's a report, 
um, came out and it explicitly talks about how the child welfare system was one, not designed for adolescents, it was designed for our toddlers. And on top of that, that there is a negative harm that's being done to young people. The way that the system is designed is in contra it contradicts the actual science. So we need healthy risk-taking opportunities. We need the ability to be able to form our identity, to be able to practice the life skills that are gonna be the foundation for us to be um, a young adult who are not only literally just meeting our basic needs, meeting our self-sufficiency, but that really are positioning us to be able to thrive. And so what we have is a system that has been centered on mitigating risk, um, the, the, the mental models and the philosophies that come with, we have to kind of earn help. So we see those of us who learn how to kind of shift a little bit to the right and fit into the puzzle pieces of the system, we're the ones who get the best help because we're compliant. We are getting, we, we, we are making friends with the workers. We are doing what we have to do to be able to go ahead and survive, right? And so this system is built on these ideas of you earn support, that there is a helper, there is one person who frames your life before the courts. And that determines what type of services and what type of power do you get to have about your very own life. That is the definition of oppression unjust control over someone else's life. And the implication on someone's development, I believe, are so detrimental. That is why we see what we see today. Yeah, and I think of, you know, talking about the system not being created for young people. I think we see that in a lot of systems where young people are forgotten, right? So I think of the mental health system I work in, I'm actively on a grant that's trying to focus on the very fact that to transition from child to the adult system, it's hard and it's not clear. And that's where that cliff happens, but it happens in so many places. And I think of how often I think in the news, I don't hear a ton about young people, not as much as I probably should. Um, we think about kids as like vulnerable, but young people themselves also needing a lot of support and they just kind of get lost and like, well, you're 18 now, so you're an adult and like, surprising that we're still not fully beyond that thought process mm. yet. So absolutely to all of yes, that. Yes, <laughs> to all of that. And I wonder, Sixto, if you can elaborate just a little bit more on where we're at now. You ended up by saying, that's why, this is why we find ourselves where we do. Where, where are we? What is the landscape, particularly for LGBTQ foster youth who are aging out of the system, who don't have support, who are finding themselves at the intersections of pipelines back into systems that weren't made for us in the first place. Yeah. When I think about where are we, I get rooted in the evidence of what young people are asking for, not what another report is saying about our young people, but what are they asking for? And in this application, where we had 27,000 young people um, you know, report their needs, report what would be helpful, just literally provide us insight to where they're at. 11,000 said that they were in need of a voucher, right? A housing voucher. Out of that 11,000, it's, it's the majority, over half are people who do not identify as straight. And so what it tells me where we're at is that we're failing our young people. 
right? And we're failing to figure out not only how, how they thrive, but all the other things that come with it. How have we actually set someone up to heal? How have we done the work as a system so that the conditions are set that they are embedded into that network of caring, loving adults who care for them like family? How is it that they're really able to be able to meet their basic needs? And so the system is just failing. Just failing. That's where we are, folks. We're failing. So it's commonly known that more placements for foster youth often lead to worse outcomes. Are there effective interventions that can help reduce harm? What we know works is family. And having that chosen family who you're deeply connected with, who is there for you in times of need, like that is what humans are. We do so much um, to feel connected, to feel wanted, to feel valued. In fact, when I think about all of the kind of uh, creatures that roam the earth, we are a very funny species. We center our lives in how is it that we relate ourselves to the different people around us. And what do we make those things mean about who we are and how we show up in the world? And so when it comes down to it, I believe there's no stronger intervention than really being able to go ahead and equip people with the ability to form those connections. But a system that's focused on risk is going to stray away from that. A system that is focused on making sure that it checks the boxes and that that compliance culture is prioritized is not going to allow the young person to be able to take the risk of sometimes whether it be driving a car or meeting new family members. And we hear these stories all the time. And so what I would say is that one of the most important things that we can be thinking about is how is it that we really set the conditions for people to be able to heal in relationship to the people that they care about and love. Mm. That's such a powerful restorative justice model that you touched on. Really powerful. Thank you. Sixto, it's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you, and it is so great in the worlds we live in today with Miss Rona to be able to share virtual community with you. But before we go, here's a thought. What are some myths about foster youth, LGBTQ plus foster youth in particular, that need to be busted? Play the role of Mythbuster for us. <laughs> you know, one of the biggest myths I believe exists today around LGBTQ foster youth is really this notion that we're unlovable. When we think about the move from home to home to home, when we think about the way that the system treats us, it is a myth that one, the public sometimes believes, one, the caregivers sometimes believe, but the biggest damage is that this myth is so pervasive that then we as young people begin to believe it too. And that type of internalizing, of feeling unlovable, of having to always move, of having to be different, of not being accepted, it's just, I think, one of the heaviest myths. And what I've seen is now is that as we get older, then we come into these, these moments where we discover ourselves and we're able to live our truth and who we are. And it has taken years of suffrage, right? It's taken years to be able to get to that point. And I just think that if there was one myth that we can bust, it would be that one. 
such an important myth to bust. When you said that the biggest myth is that foster youth aren't lovable, that shook me to my core. I immediately flashed back to being a young child in and out of foster homes and hopping from group home to group home and needing to be my biggest advocate. And maybe I'm just reflecting in real time that there's some unhealed trauma there. Um, but we have to talk about this because we are lovable. We have hopes and dreams and aspirations. And what foster youth long for the most is connection. And I think this weaves so perfectly into what you said just a few minutes ago about the importance of family and those holistic interventions that really center restorative justice. Thank you so much for, for centering that and uplifting that message. Yeah, I think I have felt like part of my adult life already has been trying to unpack those feelings, um, especially because I, you know, I aged out and I didn't get adopted and that's fine. But I think a part of that still left me wondering, like, was there a reason? <laughs> and so, and I think that's even less about being a foster youth, but especially around when I was leaving care, I finally came out and I, I had never fully been myself while in care. And so what if that had been the possibility for me to be fully myself and also then meet the family that's like, this is who you are, this is Elliot. And so I hope that in our lifetimes, we see a lot more of young people finding their families um, that accept them entirely as they are. Period. One of the things that come to mind for me is that we are living in a system that has allowed and accepted that young people would age out of it. We've actually created programs to aid young people as they age out. And that experience of aging out is one that I believe is very disruptive even to the subconscious self. And the reason I believe this is because it is such a hard moment when you finally get to this point where you have to accept that your childhood has came and gone. That those Christmas movies, that those, that idea of family that need to be embedded and a group of people that make you feel love has now gone because the moment you age out, priority the and, and what everything that society tells you is that you have to prepare to take care of yourself. You have to be the one to make sure that you make enough money to pay your own rent, to be able to do it because there will be no one. And so in this pandemic, while most of us are expected to shelter in place, we have young people turning 18, 19, 20, 21, and having to take their stuff out of where they're living that day and try to figure out how to survive out, out, out on the streets, out in their own apartments, out without some of the supports. And so for me, I think that if we're looking for true reform, if we're looking for a new system, it has to be rooted in centering healing. It has to be rooted in centering relationship and connection and really that radical acceptance of the beautiful human beings that are in the system. Some of the most resilient people that we have on earth are the people who have gone through immense trauma. 
Yeah, oh, my yeah. younger self is just feeling so affirmed. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is why I have deep found appreciation for you, Sixto, because every time, whether it's at a conference, whether yeah. it's virtually, whether it's just in passing, you are you are such a change maker not just in terms of the work that you do, but in the lives that you touch. I think we all have, at, at one point, we all get to have enough of insights to start to get the nudge that we may want to operate a little differently and show up in the world a little bit less sad or show up in the world a little bit less angry. And the moment we get that nudge, if we lean into it, to be able to do some of the deep healing that we need, um, like every human needs, I think we start living life in a very different way. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm gonna (laughs) close this out. Such a riveting conversation and there's more to come. So stay tuned by checking out our website, exchangeforchange.org. The joke's on you. Here are some fun bloopers from this exchange. It's a discussion, it doesn't have to be super formal and I'll clean up what I can and make it sound like it was a seamless conversation. Right, this is not a formal thing. I am doing my makeup on screen. It's, <laughs> it's a mess. Also, I'm taking a photo for our between the scenes, behind the scenes sort of, uh, promo later so know that <laughs> okay well let me finish i don't want that to make shot you look good um i'm more available through text email who might get me in 45 days yeah. uh, but- while you're looking that up can we talk a little bit about what we're hoping to drive home you're reading my mind <laughs> okay listen i've been i am i'm good blessed and highly favorite yeah I cannot wait to go ahead and just lay down. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Elliot, I'm just, I'll call you after, but I'm super proud. It made it a little bit harder on the data. Yeah. but <laughs> People went in. <laughs> I'll scratch that. Don't put that in there. Perfect. Oh, yeah. And we're done. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let I forgot. Wait, how, how am I looking? Make the face that you want to wait, have. Let me change my lighting. <laughs> let me change my lighting first. First of all. Because this face has been on all day. It's been a day. Wait, let me take off my earphones, too. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Oh, hold on one second. I'm not. That's okay. Okay.